Hi everyone, and welcome to Author Pep Talks. I'm your host, Lakenze Kemp, and today I'm interviewing Amparo Ortiz, the author of the young adult fantasy novel, Blaze Wrath Games, which debuted in October of 2020. Amparo was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and currently lives on the island's northeastern coast. She holds an MA in English and a BA in psychology from the UPR's Rio Piedras campus. Her short story comic, What Remains in the Dark, appeared in the Eisner Award-winning anthology Puerto Rico Strong, and Saving Chupi, her middle-grade graphic novel, comes out with HarperCollins in 2022. When she's not teaching ESL to her college students, she's streaming K-pop music videos, vlogging for her eponymous YouTube channel, and writing about Latinx characters in worlds both contemporary and fantastical. Today, we're talking about scheduling moments of joy, music as an emotional entry point into story, and giving yourself permission to suck. Amparo is so witty and funny and full of optimism. Her anecdotes and advice left me feeling so much lighter, and I hope our conversation leaves you feeling lighter too. So curl up in a cozy spot, maybe even with a snack nearby, and then enjoy my conversation with Amparo Ortiz. What has this year been like debuting during a pandemic? So you're dealing with the stress of the debut on top of the stress of a pandemic. What has that been like? That's been, it's been really weird (laughs) because, and also normal, because since I do live in Puerto Rico, I didn't really think that I would get to meet a lot of readers anyway, or go to events. I did plan on going to BEA, but as we know, that did not happen. (laughs) So that was the only like certain thing I had in terms of scheduling um, an event. But after March, I quickly figured out that it was just not going to happen. And even like before they were like, yes, we are postponing. And then eventually they said, yes, we're canceling. So in terms of socializing with readers or colleagues or my literary heroes, that didn't go as planned. But at the same time, I wasn't shocked or too upset because I didn't really think that I would get too many opportunities to do so, to travel. In terms of promoting the work, I always knew that I had to do it cyber, in a cyber space, because I wanted to do something that, in terms of the pre-order campaign, I wanted to do something that felt accessible. For example, my campaign was international, so I stuck to materials that were flat and easy to mail and in terms of actually participating in events and such well I was quite happy that everything moved virtual but at the same time I was like oh imagine you know if we could all just meet and hang out so I was sad about that but at the same time I wasn't because I expected it so it was a mix of wow this is completely different to what I wanted and well this was what I expected to some degree and for different reasons. (laughs) Were you on deadline at any point this year also? Oh my god. (laughs) I hate that word but yes I was. I wrote the I'm sorry the first draft of my sequel. I had three months to write it so I drafted it in two months and then revised for a month and then sent it over to my editors and this was after like several days of not writing anything because I was so sad. 
about writing this specific book because I chose a very different approach to the first book. The sequel is sadder and like it has explorations of trauma specifically. And I'm like, why am I writing this story? Why does my main character need to go through this? And I'm like, I do not want to write this book. But I wrote it and I'm currently in the line edit stage. And I'm actually enjoying myself. I like torturing my character now. I'm like, haha. But while I was drafting, it was really just draining emotionally. And I was drafting it during April, May. So it was just like, this is brand new territory. Like we are still in this pandemic or just about to like experience it for the very first time. And it was really rough. Like it was really rough. And I was also starting to gather all of the materials for promoting the first book and I was participating in events and such and doing interviews and I was happy about those things but at the same time I was like oh my god this book is so sad so I also had a short story deadline that was for the recently announced Latinx uh, horror anthology that I'm putting together with Shamile Saed Mendes so I actually had to write the entire draft of that short story and I thought that we could just you know sell it on proposal And our agent was like, yes, we will sell it on proposal, but we need the actual samples. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. So that was the first time that I sat down and wrote an entire short story um, within that same genre, which is horror. So I've written uh, books or manuscripts, but never like a short story. So I was like, oh my God, I might not be, you know, ready for this during this year, but I will be ready. I forced myself to be ready. And so that was, I had like a week to draft it and revise it. And then, yeah, because Shamile is like a machine. Like she's super like on point. She just hits everything. She makes every shot. And so in my case, I was like, oh no. And I was like trying to write that short story while I was also working on the sequel, like the first draft. So I was like working on both at the same time. And then I don't think I had any other deadlines. I have one now for the line edits and the developmental edit. That was a huge thing for me because I actually did not make my deadline for developmental edits. I had, I handed it in two weeks later. And that was the first time that I missed a deadline for the same reason. Like the book was really sad for me. And I was like, oh my God, why am I just focusing on this specific narrative so much? Because of course, At the end of book one, we have some events that completely change the main character's life and her perspective on not just her purpose, but the purpose of other characters and other people in her life. So she's exploring grief. She's exploring all the things that hurt and she doesn't want to face them. So I was facing them with her and that was not too fun. (laughs) Do you think the pandemic had any effect on the direction that you chose to go thematically for that project? I think it it was always supposed to happen that way, but at the same time, the pandemic fueled it, made it more important somehow to me as a person and as a writer. It challenged me because I've never written a book that was dealing with grief in such an overt way. And in the case of this specific project, it's quite different in tone from the first book because the first book is fun and it's action-packed it has adventure and this one does have some fun and some adventure and some action but there's a tinge of sadness in everything that happens in terms of the action 
Um, I would love to give spoilers right now and tell you exactly what I'm talking about, but it would make it easier to understand. But it's just how do you move on from losing your purpose in life? How do you move on when you don't have any hope for the future or when your hope is completely redefined? What makes you happy? What makes you feel like you're worthwhile? So all of those things I was asking myself through the character and it just made me slow down. Like I was completely a different person. But at the same time, I wrote a first draft in two months. And I know that a lot of people can't say that or don't say that or can't exactly work that fast during a pandemic. But the sadness, I just wanted to get away from it. So I just wrote really fast. And I think all those questions that you just mentioned that your main character is grappling with, I feel like those are the exact same questions that people were grappling with during the pandemic, especially those who were laid off or, or had to find a different kind of employment from what they were doing before. A lot of these existential crises the pandemic brought on really challenged people to, to take a closer look at their lives. That's exactly it. Like the existential crisis. I, as a college student, loved exploring that specifically in critical theory, but oh my gosh, like writing about it is just another experience entirely. And it does drain you if you're the type of writer who attaches themselves to the characters or if the characters feel like they are a part of you, it can get trickier because that line between what is the character's life and your life blurs to the point where you just feel like you're feeling what they're feeling, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that's the problem that I'm having with with my sophomore book. And in fact, when I turned in a draft to my editor, I said in my email that because this story is so personal to me, it's about losing a parent, which I have experienced and I went through when I was a teenager. I told her that I could tell that I was holding back and that there's a lot of stuff in the book that just feels really surface level. Part of it is because I didn't have a lot of time to draft because of some other things that kind of delayed us finding out which project was actually going to be book two. Oh, awesome. I yeah. Mean, I so awesome because it's like you have options. <laughs> I had options, but they rejected option one. Oh, no. <laughs> so, so I had to go with option two, which was the more difficult story to tell. And so that's what I'm in the midst of revising right now. So on top of me being the type of writer that you just described, someone who connects so deeply with the characters and feels like they're a part of you, you, I'm also writing about an experience that I have personally had. So it has been really tough. And as you say, sophomore novels in general, they are el cuco, right? Like they're the, the boogeyman of publishing. A lot of people say that the second book in a contract or specifically if it's a sequel it's just the toughest book to write because of expectations the ones you have the ones your publisher has the community of readers has so it's just a lot to take in so during the drafting stage you said you were kind of forcing yourself to get through it because you were you know trying to get out of the weeds of that that really tough thematic material so what are what are some things that you did maybe some strategies that you used my favorite one, and this is something that I do a lot, is I listen to music, but not to make myself write. For example, I don't necessarily write or revise to music. 
I listen to music while I'm not in front of any screen. Like I take time away from the computer or the notebook and I just listen to music. Sometimes it'll be a song that directly relates to a character or it can be a song that relates to how I feel or how the scene is supposed to feel. And what I do is I let myself brainstorm and I let myself be as present as possible in the scene that is giving me the hardest time. And after a while, I realized, okay, this wasn't working because I was approaching it incorrectly. And through that exercise, I feel like it's just easier for me to write and to go or move ahead because I envision it clearly. And then when I'm writing, I do outline, but sometimes those outlines don't work or you modify them as you go. So it's very important to remember, even if you outline the entire scene, maybe once you're sitting down and writing everything, you realize that is not the way to do anything. (laughs) You have made a terrible mistake. So I just listen to music a lot. And something that I feel like, I believe it was B.E. Schwab or Victoria Schwab who said that she doesn't read other books while she's drafting. And I'm actually the opposite. I need to read other books while I'm drafting because it helps me envision my own story better because of structure and maybe word choice and style, especially if it's something written in the same genre or for the same age group. And I tend to read a lot more when I'm drafting, even if I don't have time because I'm under deadline or on deadline. I just read anyway. (laughs) I read a lot. When you're listening to music, are you moving? Are you walking or are you just sitting? (laughs) I try to just sit and be like, well, this is interesting. And I, if I know the song by heart, then I can move around. But if I, I'm just discovering an artist and I'm like, oh, these are the most popular songs according to iTunes or whatever, or Spotify. I'm like, I'm a huge Spotify user. So I just check the most popular songs. And I'm like, especially if it's classical music or instrumental music, I'm more inclined to listen to their most popular songs. And then I like play around. I could like a song just based on title alone. I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting. Let me just check it out. And usually I do end up liking them or loving them and obsessing over them. But I feel like it's important to like let yourself experiment. Maybe you don't do what I do, but or I don't do what you do. But if I tried it, maybe it would work. For example, I know a lot of people who, instead of just being like going away from the page, they keep at it and they just write random things and they just make it through their block or make it through their question marks because they just brainstormed in that same moment that the doubt crept in or the questions crept in. So I feel like I couldn't do that because I would just be like, oh, complete waste of human skin if I just stared at the screen and tried to like write whatever you know because I would just literally have to toss all of that out and of course drafting is not the final product so you will toss some stuff out maybe even all of it you don't know hopefully not all of it oh my gosh but for the most part I'm like no I need to get away from the computer because like looking at it and knowing it's there stresses me out and does not get me anywhere near what I need to actually write. And you mentioned earlier about your sophomore book that you asked for an extension on your deadline. What was the reason for that? And how did you go about advocating for yourself to get more time? That's a lovely question because we were in the middle of elections when I was under this or on this deadline. 
And the thing is, I live in Puerto Rico, so we had our own elections at the same time as the U.S. had their elections. So in case any listeners don't know, Puerto Rico is a U.S. territory. So anything that happens nationally in the U.S. affects my country. So I was just doubly worried. <laughs> and also, I spent a week on chapter one, like a full seven days on the first chapter, because the notes that I had received from my two editors were all sensical, of course, and they clicked. But I was just like, I have no idea how to actually change the things that they're asking me to change, because I just did not envision having to change them, which was silly on my part, because of course, this is not a final draft. You have to change some things. And sometimes you don't even think that that thing is the one that you have to change. I'm like, wait, I have to do what? I don't know how to do that. And you can't just go up to your editor and be like, hey, can you tell me what to do? <laughs> like, no. I mean, I'm sure an editor would love to help you in that sense. But for the most part, it's your job, right? Because it's your story. So it was the idea of having to work through election season and also not knowing what my story was supposed to be because I knew what it was and I knew what I wanted it to be, but I didn't know how to get it to the place where everyone was on the same page. So I was like, whoa, I don't know how to change this chapter. Like, I'm not sure how to show this specific pain that my character is experiencing at all. So I had to, I spent, like I said, seven days on chapter one. And then I was like, oh no, now I have three weeks for the rest of the book. <laughs> and it's like 40 something chapters. I'm like, how am I going to do this? And so I kindly asked for two additional weeks. And my editors were so comprehensive and understanding because they were also swamped with work because in the landscape or the current landscape, my previous editor had left the imprint. And so I was being, I was working with two editors that I didn't know, but not as their actual, I don't want to say client, but like working with them, I wasn't their author yet. And so it was interesting because we were all getting to know each other and we all thought super highly of each other. But at the same time, we're like, I don't know what I'm doing. And if I tell them that I don't know what I'm doing, they're going to drop me, which is not the case. But I'm just like, in my mind, I was so dramatic about it. And then I was like, oh, you guys, I'm so sorry. But, you know, the world is ending. <laughs> I'm ending. <laughs> my brain is failing me. And uh, this book sucks. Can you give me two more weeks? And they were... Like, yes, you can have two more weeks. I'll just, you know, let production know that you're going to hand it in later. And I was like, oh, okay, great. But I felt really embarrassed, to be very honest with you. I felt embarrassed because it was the first time I was asking for an extension. And I was like, I cannot let myself become this author who just misses deadlines. But I'm like, I guess 2020 was a pass for all of us, especially debuts. And 2021 should also be a pass because we're still in this. <laughs> Exactly. I agree with that, especially yes. because I'm supposed to finish my developmental edits in about two weeks. In oh. fact, when I first got my edit letter, when she sent it to me via email and she said that I would have a total of three weeks to do this first round of developmental edits, I knew instantly that I was probably going to have to ask for more time. Yeah. Very little time. I know. So I'm already anticipating needing to do that. So I'm really happy to hear that 
that you kind of got over that initial embarrassment and that they, you know, gave you the extra time that you needed. Do you remember what it was that kind of triggered you to be able to create some momentum and, and get back into working on that revision? I think it was right after I got that yes from my editors, that permission to not fail, but to have that opportunity to play around with the story more. And I knew that I had to have more structure to my workflow. I teach as my day job. So I was just, and you know, since we're virtual, it's easier, more convenient for me personally. I know a lot of colleagues who hate teaching virtually and it's actually a hassle, but I personally agree with it. So I felt like it was easier for me to divide or split my time between writing and teaching. But at the same time, when I sat down to write, I needed to have like my mind completely devoid of anything that wasn't the story. And I was bringing a lot of weight from my work or like personal stuff into that specific time. And I think that was weighing me down more, especially because, you know, election stress and just life stress. I was like, no, I need to just completely free myself. And that, of course, it was music again or just reading a book or reading a passage or reading a, or watching YouTube. I love watching booktubers or author tubers or just videos like how-to videos. They completely de-stress me. And that's how I kind of just forced myself. I was like, okay, so today we're going to do 50 pages. I do not know exactly if I'm going to make that, but that is the plan. And that helps me a lot. So it's just figuring out a way to remove some of those psychological roadblocks. Yeah. So any of the strategies that you use to help you draft during the pandemic, did you cultivate any of those strategies during another time in your life when there was a lot of stress and upheaval, but you were still trying to write and maintain a creative practice? Well, in the case of writing something under contract, I think the fact that you are under contract, it spurs you on. Because it's not just about you, it's about something that you have to deliver and people are waiting for it. So that definitely makes you work harder. But the coping mechanisms, as I call them, for drafting faster or more efficiently or even revising more efficiently, I actually always do them anyway. I read a lot, I watch videos a lot, and I try to listen to music a lot. But I noticed that during this pandemic and precisely with this second book, that I tend to write to my friends more. I don't know if that makes any logical sense when when it comes to writing, but I notice that I like to communicate with my friends more. And, and not just like friends like outside of publishing, but specifically my author friends or writer friends. I feel like knowing that I'm not alone helps a lot. Even if you know you don't necessarily believe when someone tells you, you can do it, this is what you were meant to do. You know, it's like, yes, you were obligated to say that, thank you. But at the same time, you're like, it's so nice to know that you definitely are not alone. It's a community and you need to find your community because not everyone is going to be your friend, even if they're cordial, not everyone is your friend. You need to find who actually feeds you in terms of your self-esteem and your growth. Like you don't feel like you're less than anyone, that you're both on equal ground and people feel like they are there to actually support you and lift you up. So I feel like having that communication, I mean, I met so many 
debut authors in 2020 who are now people that I consider my friends because at first it was like, oh my God, we have to do this event together. Like, are you okay with me doing this? For example, I was part of the POC debuts group. So I had to initially had a month by myself and I had to host a chat, a Twitter chat by myself. But then things happened that we moved the schedule around and I actually co-hosted the chat with Chloe Gong author of These Violent Delights. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that you got lumped in with me. And she was like, no, it's fine. And so like stuff like that leads to people actually making connections that help you feel like you're valid. And also, if you're a huge reader, it helps to see people love books just as much as you do. Because I think a lot of writers or authors focus so much on craft that they forget that you can actually learn and grow from just picking up a book and reading it start to finish and keeping up a habit of it. But when you're on deadline, it's just like, whoa, I have no time for anything else, especially if you're a parent or if you're responsible for your household. It's just a lot to take in. And I feel like communication or connecting with others is something that I you know, rarely did. I don't want to sound antisocial, but I rarely did that to the point where I would like text a lot of people or like FaceTimed or stuff like that with a lot of people. And now I feel like my friends, like my in real life friends, people outside of publishing, they have heard more from me than they've ever heard, you know? So it's like, they're like, oh my gosh, this chick again. <laughs> but it's mostly because of that. You're, you're craving that sense of like, you're not in this by yourself. There are others who care and there are others who are also struggling and might need you more than you might need them. I think both maintaining those connections and those friendships as well as prioritizing reading and remembering that you were a fan first. All of those things seem really focused on preserving joy. Preserving joy. And it's also like if you don't feel joy from certain things uh, that are popular or that people do more often or there are more common activities, that doesn't mean you're just like not accepted or like you will not be liked or no one will make you feel valid. It just means you're different and there's nothing wrong with being different. So find what makes you feel that happy and that aware of how important connection is and how strong your connection can be with others. So we all have our community. It's all just a matter of trying to find it. And if you don't find it, then we create it. Right. Like Las Musas. Yeah. I think Las Mosas saved my life in a lot of ways because I was like, oh my gosh, like literally I'm not alone. There's a lot of us here. <laughs> and also I just felt like looking at everybody's success, like launching and having their books out in the world and how the Musas from 2019 debuting or launching in 2019 supported us in 2020 and, and are going to keep supporting others in 2021 or their debuts. It's just like, this is more than I could have expected or more than I could have asked for. Because people will be like, oh, remember, for example, year, end of year lists, the best of lists. We're not all going to be on them. And if we're lucky, we might be in one, you know, and it, that still doesn't make us any less than. So it's just about finding people that if you're in a end of year best list and if you're not, they're still the same towards you, like in terms of their treatment and how they view you, how they lift you up and support you, you're still the same person to them. And I feel like Las Mosas is that ensemble 
that anchors me in a way that I feel like I have a community. Yeah, I think that's part of why I wanted to start this podcast. One reason was to to force some of you to meet me. (laughs) (laughs) Which I'm never mad at. It's a good excuse to, to get to know people. And I feel like being a part of the Marketing Collective has brought out that more social side of me that craves connection. And I don't think that I have felt that in a really long time. I think the last time that I had really close female friendships was when I was in college. And then after that, it just became so much harder to make friends. We moved several times and I feel like wherever you work, that's probably where you're going to meet people to socialize with. So if there's no one at your place of work that you really click with, like, how do you find friends? It's just really hard. And especially when you have, not that writing is a hobby, but like a really niche interest, like writing or reading, those are very specific people that you're looking for. Yeah. And sometimes it's hard to know where to find them. And in my case, my colleagues at my workplace, I do have friendships there. I've made friendships there. But like a lot of times I'm like, you have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? So I I definitely have to find people within this community because they're going to be like, oh, yes, you're on deadline. I know exactly what you mean. Instead of having to be like, well, I have this deadline because I'm under contract. And if I don't meet my deadline, blah, 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 you know? Or if you say, I just saw my cover for the first time, they will understand your excitement. (laughs) Whereas people outside of the community, they'll be like, what does it look like? And I'm like, it looks like my name on a cover. And I saw it for the first time, you know? So you have to over explain things and that can take the enthusiasm out of the conversation for you. Because it, it just becomes work. So it's definitely a balance of finding or connecting with people outside of publishing and writing in general, but also like knowing how to identify or learning how to identify where your energy is best served for specific things. We need people not just to validate the struggle that we're going through, but we also need people to validate those celebrations as well. So I'm trying to figure out a way to segue into what we discussed a little bit via email about what did your creative life look like post-hurricane? Oh, it looked like absolutely nothing got done. (laughs) Because in my case, I lost both power and water. And I lost water for about two weeks. And the power came back a month and a half after the hurricane. Because we had two in a row. We had Irma first, and then two weeks later, it was Maria. So it was like I lost power and water for a little bit during the Irma one. And then Maria took everything for about a month and a half. And so what I did was like I would search for internet on my phone throughout the island and contact my agent. I wasn't under contract. I had not sold anything by that point. But I was working on Blaze Wrath what we all know as Blaze Wrath Games right now. Started drafting it in January. I was almost done with it. And then Maria happens and I had to stop it because I had no way of actually like working on it other than in long, like handwritten form. And I just didn't feel like it. I was like, this is so unimportant compared to what we're struggling with because this is survival we're talking about here. And I'm worried about a book, you know, and instantly that shift happened and I could not bring myself to care about writing or publishing in general. But I told my agent, I'm like, well, I'm going to let you know once everything gets back to normal. But 
just be, you know, aware that we've never been through this here. So, we, I mean, we've had horrible hurricanes, but not to the point where the entire country was just in shambles. And she was like, I understand. Don't worry about it. And so once we got power back, there was like a switch in my head. And all I could do was draft. Every single day, I wrote something for Blaze Rock Games, the first draft. And I finished it on the absolute last day of December of 2017. So I spent an entire year on a first draft that was almost 500 pages, but I felt so proud. I was like, this is a mess, but it's done. And I wrote it after the worst period of my life. And it was really horrible. But at the same time, I was like, wow, I've never felt the need to do something more in my life. And I finished that first draft. So during that I did remember that first week after the hurricane hit, I read 31 books in a week. All I did was read because I had nothing else to do. <laughs> I was like, I had no work. I didn't have power, no cell phone service. So what do I do? I tackle my TBR <laughs> and I read 31 books in a week. And then I kind of slowed down because I was like, oh no, I'm reading too much. Do you remember? I was like, this is a lot. Like, I don't even remember the books that I read, like the contents. So I'm like, I'm reading this wrong, but I was just looking for distraction, I guess. And then I realized once my living situation got much better, I was still dealing with friends who had lost their homes or friends who had lost their relatives in a country that was trying to recover. And, you know, we're doing some work still in 2021. We're still seeing the consequences or the effects of that year and that period in our lives. But my book is on shelves. The book that I almost did not write because I didn't even know that I could as a person, as a writer, and also because my country was almost like destroyed entirely. So I'm like, you know what? I'm proud of you, book, because you're on shelves. So it was hard, but I forced myself to work through essentially the worst period of my life until that moment. But also I was passionate about it. I was like, if I do this, if I finish this, then I will have made myself proud. And I just wanted to prove to myself that I could do it. And my agent, also my agent, shout out to my agent, Linda Camacho at Galton Sacker Literary. Super, super amazing cheerleader. She was like, I want this book. I need this book. You need to write this book. You will write this book. So just keep writing. And I did. Do you think that return to some semblance of normalcy, going back to work, having that type of schedule again, did that help you get back into drafting? It did and it didn't. It did in the sense that I felt like I needed that escape again. Because <laughs> writing for me is not necessarily an escape because it is all I you know, do in my mind. Even if I'm not writing like on the computer, I'm writing in my head. But it was definitely my source of joy. So I, I found a way to treat it as a job, even though I wasn't being paid for it, and also treat it as my, my joy, my source of joy. So I tried to be as efficient as possible at like a job, you know, in that framework of making it my profession. I want it to be a career author, so let me just prove it to myself, you know? Then at the same time, I was like, well, sometimes teaching can just leave you with no sense of hope, <laughs> not necessarily because of the people you're teaching, but the, the nature of the job itself is quite draining. And it was just, you know, a lot to deal with specifically because sometimes your students will 
treat you like you're their psychologist. And when you're all going through the same trauma, it heightens yours and it's just like overbearing. And as writers, it's almost a natural instinct to take those things in because emotions. You're a sponge. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, painters, their tool is a paintbrush and paint, and, and our tool is words and emotion. And so we're constantly making observations, taking those things in, whether we realize it or not. Once you said that about teaching, it made me think back to the springtime when we first switched to virtual after spring break. And it was very stressful trying to check in on my students and figure out what they were without, what they needed. When we were in the classroom, it was just natural for them to to tell me what was going on in their personal lives and things that were happening with their families. But obviously once the pandemic started, the struggles looked very different and people were in much more dire need. And so it was really stressful. No one was prepared because we were not exposed to this as a possibility. Do you think that your experience with the hurricane and also the experience of this past year living through the pandemic makes it easier for you to notice when you're in need of a break or when you're in need of more flexibility in your deadlines? Yes, because I, prior to the pandemic specifically, but after Maria, like during like the latter part of 2017, all the way up to 2019, most of it, I usually just dealt with being stressed or feeling unhappy by just not doing anything, but not realizing that I was actually depressed. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm not going to do anything just because I don't want to do it. I'm like, yes, that is that is depression. But <laughs> I was like, you just have to like try to like cope because of course there is such a thing as being sad. Just it's normal to be sad. But as a teenager, for example, I would have moments where I was just very angry all the time and just like I would lash out at specifically my parents even if they hadn't done anything, I would just yell at them and scream, which I'm assuming a lot of teenagers do anyway, but I was just like irrationally angry all the time. And as an adult, I, I, I mean, normally I do have a temper in general, but like I don't get angry like I lash out. I just get sad more often or like I just I, I'm unmotivated and just not, the not doing anything is my response to having to do too much. So now that we're in the middle of the pandemic, but like we know we're in a pandemic, my coping has mostly just been like understanding how scheduling works for me. If I, if I have a plan, I can execute it. But at the same time, I give myself days off. I force myself to not do anything without it feeling self-indulgent to the point where I feel guilty because you can self-indulge, but you don't have to feel guilty about it because how are you going to be productive if you don't take time off? You have to take time off. You need to recharge and replenish yourself and such. If you don't do that, when you do work, you will either do a terrible job or you will stop feeling joy or having that sense of, yes, this is what I should be doing with my life. And of course, we all go through the motion sometimes when we're working. It's like, I have to do this whether I want to do it or not. But there's a difference between that mindset versus just absolutely hating every second and being angry about having to work or feeling hopeless about having to work and like powerless about having to work. That is where you need to take time away from what you're doing. 
So what I do now is that I'm like, I schedule my entire week and I try to just include things that are not work related. I'm like, watch two hours of K-pop videos or something like that, you know, something that I know will make me feel or read a comic book or just like make yourself have fun, (laughs) plan the fun. And it might sound strange, but you know, if you're into astrology, I am a Capricorn, so maybe that will answer some of your questions about me. Um, I need structure. But in the sense of like feeling accomplished about not doing anything, that's taken me time to achieve. But nowadays, I'm like, you know what? I made it out of 2020. We all did. If you're listening to this, then you made it out of the worst year in a long time for the world's history. I love that strategy. Yeah, because it's a visual representation of something that you thought about. Because sometimes... When you're under duress, you forget things and you're just like, I know people who have suffered going back to suffering through trauma or loss or grief that is overbearing. People suffer memory loss as well. So it's just like, how do you remind yourself of something that might not feel essential, but you, it is essential for your mental health? I tend to schedule my work day with, you know, all of the writing things that need to get done, all of the business related things to get done. And I tell myself that if I get through this entire list and I'm not exhausted by the end of the day, then I get to do this or then I'll prioritize this or then I'll try to remember to do something that is non-work related something to do with self-care. But what ends up happening is that I work all day long. By the time I reach that exhaustion point, the day's over. Yeah. Like there's there's either <laughs> no time left or You're there's like, oh, no energy day. left to yeah. do that other thing. But I like that idea of putting it on your to-do list. And maybe it doesn't even have to be at the end. Maybe you purposefully put it in the in the middle of your day or at the beginning yeah. of your day. This is going to sound probably ridiculous to a lot of you, but I actually tell myself where in the week I'm going to eat pizza, for example, because pizza is my favorite food. And of course, you know, I have a variety of favorite dishes, but pizza is like the reason I was born. So I feel like telling myself it's Wednesday, I'm going to order pizza or I'm going to buy a frozen pizza because I will eat pizza in any shape, size or form. So I just tell myself as a reward, I'm like, I can eat pizza for no reason. I woke up. That is reason enough. So I feel like doing that and scheduling in my head, even though, you know, I I don't necessarily write it down that part, but I'm like, I'm going to eat pizza on Wednesday or I'm going to eat pizza on Tuesday or I'm going to eat pasta on Monday. You know, like I tell myself those things to look forward to those, those days, especially if it's a heavy work day, then I try to like do something extra exciting for myself. And then you're building in those moments of joy rather than just hoping that they'll pop up at some point during the week. Yeah. Precisely. I think what's difficult for me is those things that spark joy or that I consider to be some kind of reward. I feel like I have to earn it. Oh yes. And that's why I won't plan to do something like that in the middle of my work day. Because yeah. the workday's not done and I don't deserve this until I finish this. So how do you overcome that feeling? I had that a lot when I was still in college because I just felt the need to work until I dropped dead, essentially. And that's actually part of a larger problem that we have as a capitalist society, that we need to produce 
And that is one of the biggest scams of all time. Even if we don't meet our goals, that doesn't mean that we didn't succeed. We succeed when we feel like we're doing something worth our time. And that is a very difficult thing to learn. And losing that whole reward system is also really difficult to unlearn. And I know a lot of authors who actually do reward themselves and be like, if I don't finish this scene right now, I cannot watch The Witcher for the fourth time, you know? So it's like, why? first of all, why would you watch The Witcher so many times? And also, like, why would you not watch The Witcher for so many times? Like, if you want to do it, then do it. So all of these things considered, the things that you've learned about yourself, the strategies that you use, what does a typical workday look like for you? When do you fit your writing time in? I usually try to write, well, this was pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, I wrote in the mornings because my schedule as a professor changes every three months because I'm under contract. I'm a, what is known in English as an adjunct. So like my schedule changes a lot. Uh, And the campus where I teach is a trimester-based system. So it's every three months, my offering changes and my schedule changes. So I have to work with that change, which is why I say, yes, I have structure, but I also expect complete chaos every three months. Um, So in terms of my writing schedule, I work best in the mornings because from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., sometimes even 4 p.m., I'm completely useless, like in every sense of the word. And I don't know why. Like that's usually when I nap or I just go completely rebellious and just watch videos and watch movies and just read. And then at night, I don't write unless I feel like it. Even if I'm under deadline or on deadline, I don't work at night. If I feel like working at night, then I will. But usually it's during the morning and the afternoon after 4 p.m. or 3 p.m. But once 7 p.m. hits, I no longer know what writing is unless I really feel like it. I'm really in awe of people who take naps. And not every day, but I try to leave the one to four slots open for like occasional naps. Sometimes I just lay in bed and don't fall asleep, but I feel alive. (laughs) If that makes any sense, I'm like, yes, I, I am a human who has a heartbeat. So in the mornings when you're getting ready to work, do you ever struggle with a little bit of fear or anxiety before you start working? And if so, what do you do or say to yourself to kind of move past that? When I know I'm about to write something that's emotionally heavy or not heavy, but an emotion that I personally have not felt enough or deeply enough, I am a little apprehensive or a lot apprehensive because I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to do so much work now. But, um, or if it's like, for example, a very complicated fight sequence with a lot of moving parts. I'm like, oh my God, I have to just, you know, push through this, but not in an annoyed way, in like a, an ambitious way. Like I must get this right on the first try, which is ridiculous. But what I do is I just, I outline everything. I try to outline and outline and outline and outline until everything is just on the page. Music, like I said, prior to writing is essential for me. If I don't listen to music, then my whole vibe is ruined. And sometimes I actually don't need, very few times I don't need music to get in the mindset of of a scene or my character, whatever it is that she's going through. But also, I don't set word count goals. I set uh, chapter goals or scene goals. 
I'm like, okay, I don't care if I write 1K, 500 words, 300 words. The point of it is to have this scene done or this chapter done. My mind works like that. Sometimes if I write 1K, yes, I wrote 1K, but the chapter's not finished. I'm behind, you know? So I'm like, I have a specific amount of chapters and I need to write them this day or this week. And if I don't meet that deadline in my head, I'm like, no, I've ruined it all. And so that's how I work personally. And it's just a matter of vibing myself into the scene, however it feels or whatever it looks like. I have to feel like I'm there. So you need an an emotional trigger. Absolutely. Or an emotional entry point. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm just like, what was the point of sitting down? I can't focus. Which is why I don't know if you have this, but if I'm interrupted, I completely lose my focus. Like, I'm just like, I know what I have to do and I know what I'm trying to write, but I'm just staring at the screen like, wow, I am not where I was a minute ago or a second ago. One of my friends actually sent me an article that said that creative brains struggle the most with interruptions because your brain is trying to make sense of something. And that interruption takes it away and we're more sensitive to sounds. And sometimes when you're the only creative in your household, which is the case with me, it becomes a chore to have to explain to people, please knock. (laughs) Or like, even if someone knocks, I'm like, oh my God, that sound is so annoying, you know? Or if like my father, for example, loves old westerns or horror movies of any quality like if it's a horror movie whether it's a straight to dvd title or it's like an actually big like an actual big budget thing he doesn't care if it's horror he's gonna watch it and he's gonna watch it loudly and i'm like oh no i don't like my life right now because it's either explosions gunshots or people screaming and i'm like i don't i don't like this anymore i don't like this but it's all about just creating that space for me like whether it's with my privacy and just making sure that my workspace is mine and sacred and music otherwise I'm just a waste maybe some good noise canceling headphones that could work but then that means that I always have to like move around with music in my ears or it's just like that noise the headphones itself I'm like why must I force myself to do this why can't people work with me you know but yes I I completely agree sometimes we just have no choice whenever I was teaching I was actually a lot better at hopping in and out of the story because I would write a little bit in the morning I'd come back to it on my lunch break maybe in the evenings if my partner was still at work but now now that I'm not teaching anymore now that I'm home all the time I need a good block of at least two hours Yeah. Because it's going to take me half an hour just to like get Get mentally ready. Yeah. Yes. Get into the work. And then that only leaves very little time. Yeah. I can't do math. (laughs) (laughs) An hour and a half, the mathematicians would say. But yeah, I feel like it's just, it's exactly as you say. It's okay. Yes. I have two hours. For example, I could never ride during a break. If I know that I have to do something else, I can't do anything. Like I'm just focused on that other thing that I have to do. And it's because I stress myself out unnecessarily. For example, if I know that I have like an event or an interview or something that requires me to talk about my writing or my book, then I try to like work really early. 
And sometimes I just don't even do any work because I feel like, well, I worked, you know, I didn't write, but I worked. So I'm like emotionally spent. But for example, if I am not on deadline, I can work, I can write. But if I'm on deadline, surprisingly enough, I'm just like, no, I'm not doing anything because I feel like I'm just going to be writing things that aren't good. And I feel like that's a waste, which is unfair to myself, but yeah. Something about those restrictions, it just kind of messes with your head a little bit. I read a tweet that said something like, oh, I have a meeting at five. And then the rest of the day is just you thinking about the meeting at five (laughs) and like getting yourself mentally prepared for the meeting at five. And I'm like, oh my gosh, other people do that too. Yeah. I'm wondering how that's going to work for me during debut year because as an introvert, I do have to prepare for those things and I have to have time afterwards to wind down. Even though everything that I'll be doing is most likely going to be virtual, you're still interacting with people. You're still giving something of yourself in each one of those interactions. And that can be really draining and exhausting. Just yesterday, I was like, oh, I have to do this all over again this year. I have another book out this year, but it's like, it's not the same stress in the sense that yes, I'm debuting and I have to just introduce myself to people. I still have to introduce myself to people. I'm not, you know, Lainey Taylor or Cassandra Clare or someone who's like super famous, you know? So I'm like, well, I have to just keep talking about myself and my books. Now I can say plural because a second one is coming out this year. And it's weird to think that another book with my name on it will be out this year. It's like, I have to do all of that again. Oh my gosh. But at the same time, you feel quite lucky and happy about it because you already went through something that was completely unplanned and so surprising and so limiting. But you feel like even though this year, as you say, it's probably going to be virtual and it's probably going to be as limiting, you expect it. You already feel like, yes, this is what's going to happen. And if we magically go back to in-person events and everyone's vaccinated and everyone's ready to like be around other people, then that would be great. But that's not an expectation I'm having. <laughs> so yeah, we should all just think, yes, we are going to stay in this for the long haul or for the foreseeable future. And I have another book to promote this year. Holy crap. <laughs> so it's just like, okay, let's do this all over again, you guys. Well, you seem very optimistic. I try to be. But I I assume that that makes the work a little bit easier and navigating the stress and anxiety a little bit easier. I think it's also because I wrote the hardest book of my career thus far. And like I'm at the line edit stage. And even though you do change things in this specific stage, you're seeing it mostly as it is going to be. And you, I just, I felt a sense of pride and it's going to be on shelves. So there's a a joy attached to the process now, instead of like knowing that you're drafting it and you kind of feel lost because you don't know if what you're doing is the right thing to do. Even though your house, your publisher is like, yes, we approve of this outline. You can write this book. You're like, will they like it? Um, But then at the end of it all, when you see yourself, like, once I get past pages, for example, you know, when you see your book laid out, and you see how it's formatted, and you see your name and the font that it's going to appear in the book, like, it's a different mindset now. Like, it's like, oh, it's getting closer to being a book. I think what you said earlier about 
you being in a different mindset now is a good reminder that at whatever stage you're at, whether that's drafting or revisions or copy edits or line edits, whatever feeling you're having about that part of the process is temporary. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there are long lasting effects to anything that is negative, but at the same time, there are things that you might be making bigger or making more serious than they are. I feel like, of course, if you are suffering and you're hurting, that is to be taken very seriously. But if you're worried about like, am I ordering enough uh, book plates for my you know, campaign? I'm like, that's not necessarily something that you should stress about. Or like, should I do my launch party here or there? Uh, should I host it myself? Or should I ask someone to do, you know, like, who is my in-conversation partner? Those things matter, but they shouldn't take up too much of your time because the hard part is over. You wrote the book and it's coming out. Marketing it or like talking about it with other people, connecting with other people who also love books, that should not be stress inducing. (laughs) That should be the fun part of being an author. And if you're not agented or published, if you're just writing for yourself right now and you're going through a very difficult time in your life, I feel like it's about focusing on where you would like to be, but acknowledging that you are struggling. It's not about, oh, this doesn't exist. If I will it away, it will stop. I don't like people who say only positive vibes or, you know, that, that mentality. That's absolutely toxic. We should acknowledge when we're struggling and we should embrace the fact that we're struggling. And if we're going through something traumatic and we don't know how to get away from that trauma, there's nothing wrong with asking for help. So it's just about knowing where you are and knowing where you want to be. And if you can't see a way out of where you are, that is super crucial in that sense or in that state that you do ask for help. Because it's never easy to ask it, but it's always worth it. And now in the times that we're living through, super accurate and appropriate to bring up at all times. If you're too focused on, like you said, maintaining those positive vibes, (laughs) then you're not really in tune with what's going on with you mentally or emotionally. And if you're not in tune with that, then you can't tend to that when you need to. So what's maybe a last bit of either writing advice, maybe an affirmation or a mantra that you would want to give to people listening who are really struggling maintaining a creative practice right now. I think it's very important to let yourself suck because if you don't let yourself suck, then you have nowhere to improve or nothing to improve. I feel like we are so afraid of failure that we actively try to never experience it. And that is also quite damaging because it promotes this idea that when we're always producing work, when we're always doing the right thing, when we're only taking the right path or making the right choices, that's when we're actually good people and valid as human, human beings. That is not how humanity or life works. When it comes to writing, if you don't write every day, if you don't write 1K every day, or if you don't even meet your personal writing goal, so what? Like I said, you can ask for extensions if you're published or have a contract to meet or contractual terms that you have to meet 
Um, but if you don't have anything weighing you in terms of that sense of responsibility, you're just doing it for yourself, then that's the most important part of the process is when you only work for yourself. If you do what makes you happy, then you have succeeded. And if nothing is making you happy, finding that joy is also succeeding. So just give yourself a break and not in a sense of time, like away from something that you're, you're supposed to do. Give yourself a break in terms of giving yourself per- permission to suck. Thank you so much for doing Thank this you. today. Yay! This was so much fun. If you'd like to learn more about Amparo or her books, please visit her website at amparoortiz.com or find her on social media at Amparo underscore Ortiz on Instagram and Twitter. Also, be sure to buy her book, Blaze Wrath Games, published by Page Street Kids at your local indie bookstore. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also sign up for the Author Pep Talks newsletter to have weekly pep talks delivered straight to your inbox. And if you like the music featured, please check out my website, lakenzaykemp.com slash music to find more information about the instrumental soundtrack for my debut novel, Somewhere Between Bitter and Sweet, composed and performed by J.D. Morales. Thanks for listening.